Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and today's guest for the Influence Continuum is a distinguished person that I've been trying to get to do this podcast with me since I started it, uh, Ira Chaloff. Ira is the uh, author of this important book called Intelligent Disobedience, Doing Right When What You're Told to Do is Wrong, which is fantastic and The Courageous Follower, and there's a whole movement internationally of followerships, like how to be a conscious follower, keeping your eye on the values and the mission and not being uh, forced to suppress your conscience and your good common sense by the forces above, especially if there's like an authoritarian type structure that you're in. And I also want to thank you for your program, Think Blink Choice Voice, which I think is thinkblinkchoicevoice.com. If people want to see a short video you made aimed at children, uh, teaching them principles from intelligence, disobedience of if, if you're told to do something you know is wrong, like taking your pants down to a coach or go out there on the field and trip up the quarterback and make them injured, to really think, blink, realize you have a choice, and then verbalize, no, I'm not going to do that, or go tell an authority figure. All of these books are just amazingly important in my work um, to counter authoritarian control. And Ira, you've had a distinguished career. You've done all kinds of consulting and advising around the world, leadership councils. You have a long bio I'm going to put in, in the blog that we do. Forgive me for not saying more. Um, but um, I want to thank you for doing this and open, open the channel for you to maybe do an opening comment about this space that you have carved out such a huge contribution for. Well, uh, my pleasure, Steve. Thank you for inviting me to have uh, what I look forward to is perhaps a dialogue with you today. I think it's useful to understand a little bit about my background. I was raised in a multi-generational family and my maternal grandmother lost her entire family in the Holocaust in World War II. Mm. And we had a fairly social home. So their friends, my grandparents' friends would come through. I grew up in New York. I believe you did as well. Queens. Brooklyn. All right. Good. And it was in the 50s. We didn't have air conditioning. And... People came with short sleeves or no sleeves, and some of them had tattoos on their arms, numbers tattooed on their arms. And I, as a kid, of course, I went, what's that? I was so curious. Right. And I was so, shh, we don't talk about that. We don't ask them to be very nice to these people. Sooner, uh, I soon became aware that these were survivors hmm. of Nazi concentration camps, extermination camps, really. And this began a, a really a lifelong question of how and why do people follow such destructive leaders mm -hmm. as happened then and has happened all over the world and continues to happen. Now, I want to be right. very clear. I don't think leaders are inherently a destructive breed. They're not. So right. very creative and very positive. Mm -hmm. But leadership does go along with power. And as we know from the British uh, Lord Acton, power tends to corrupt. It doesn't necessarily corrupt, but it tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. So... Whenever we're dealing with leadership, particularly at a political level, we have to be aware of the potential for distortion and abuse of power. And in one way or another, 
my work, my books, my thinking, my writing, my lectures have been about this. Mm -hmm. And let me just confirm, I was raised in the 50s and we didn't have a TV and then we got a black and white TV and I too had relatives and friends, parents with the tattoos on their arms uh, and I was educated about the Shoah, the Holocaust, which I just want to state categorically is a proven fact. And Holocaust deniers were brought to court and lost because they had no evidence and there was overwhelming evidence that the Holocaust actually took place. You know, and that, in fact, the issue of abuse of power is one of the most important topics uh, on our planet today. And the idea of having control of our own minds and our own consciences and our own actions to do the right thing, even if everyone around us is doing bad, is uh, it just resonates in my soul, Ira. And that's really what I'm I'm about, is trying to also share a personal story where I literally got uh, converted into a right-wing fascist cult and thought that genocide was uh, acceptable for God. I actually believe that at, at a point in my indoctrination. And when I got deprogrammed, the horror of that, 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 that with the education that I had and then the, with all the mind control indoctrination that the Moonies did, that they got me to do evil. And so my life for the last 46 years has been trying to say, hey, I'm not stupid and I'm not crazy and I'm not uneducated. The mind can be hacked. We can accept disinformation or lies as if it's true. Yes. Well, Steve, um, I also uh, had my experience with what I now understand to be a cult. I chose not to go there in my writing. And part of the reason is I got very, what I consider good advice from my first publisher. And he, uh, I, I was focused, as you understand from the preface I gave to this talk, I was focused on resisting evil, resisting harmful actions by leaders. He counseled me to present a more holistic model of followership mm -hmm. that would embrace the whole spectrum from working with very productive leaders, ethical leaders, all the way to working with very, very problematic leaders. The reason this was such good advice was that my book, the first uh, book, The Courageous Follower, now in its third edition, became very relevant on an everyday level to people in any kind of a hierarchy. It didn't have to be a cultish hierarchy. Right. It could be the military, the police, uh, ecclesiastical organizations, um, universities, medical uh, 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 environments, etc. Wherever there was a power differential and a hierarchy. Now, uh, what that did was allow executives and uh, training departments, organizational development departments to say, hey, we need this. We need uh, to understand not just better ways of leading, but better ways of following. Hmm. And by producing um, a model that showed there's a tension between uh, supporting our leaders when they're doing well, even when we don't necessarily fully agree with them, they have the right to lead us uh, as long as it's not unethical. Mm -hmm. They make decisions that we might make different decisions. Right. Inherent in following is having a certain amount of trust and um, support freely. Right. However, if they start to move to the other end of the spectrum where they're making very bad decisions, not necessarily intentionally, but because they're focusing on the wrong data, incomplete data, what have you, or because of more venal reasons like greed and lust and what have you, um, 
then we have to have a different set of skills and even language to work with that leader, hopefully to mute this tendency to distort the use of power, and if not, to resist it or to uh, extricate ourselves from the situation. So mm -hmm. that's where I went with a holistic model. I'm deeply appreciative to my publisher for guiding me in that direction because it's allowed the book to go into all the environments I would hope it would have gone. Yeah, it it definitely sidesteps what I've had to put up with by being so out front um, where, you know, people just walk around thinking it would never happen to me. I'm too smart or, you know, those poor suckers. How could they believe, you know, that leader or whatever? Um, yeah, so it's definitely I feel like I've had an up uphill swim. <laughs> for these 46 years and yeah, and and i want to give you credit you know for the courage to do that for willing to take the uh heat you know for doing mm -hmm. that uh, as your very important voice and we each make our contribution in a different way yeah exactly so that's wonderful so um i know you've done consulting with uh companies and uh, can I start picking your brain to put out to the planet? Like, what are some of the guidance points that if anyone's a CEO of a company, if they're listening, or anyone who's in, in, in that next tier of management, are there any specific uh, uh, kernels of advice you feel comfortable sharing? Wow, I can go in so many different directions with that. You get uh, to choose. With that open-ended question. Um, you know, so one, one thing to say is that um, I'm based most of my career in the Washington, D.C. area. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, I actually wound up doing much more with government agencies, large government agencies, than with corporate America. Although I spent several years... Uh, working inside of corporate America, I'm learning a lot about how it does work, which was a wonderful experience. Mm -hmm. So we're not just talking about business CEOs here. We're talking about the head of any hierarchy, again, whether it's military, uh, federal agency, state government, corporate uh, world, um, uh, you know, uh, the Catholic Church, what have you. Right. Now, Having said that, I want to create, first of all, in your listeners' minds, mm -hmm. we have to get over, we have a cultural uh, bias that the word follower and the role, the role of follower is undesirable. It's a role of weakness, it's a passive, it's sheepish, etc. We have a culture that um, there's one uh, academic who describe it, describes it as the romance of leadership. Hmm. Everybody's supposed to be a leader. Oh, yeah? What is hmm. one thing a leader needs in order to lead? A Followers. Follow <laughs> Otherwise, they can't lead. So if we're all leading all the time, no one is leading. Right. So the, it, it, it's actually an irrational um, statement. So... Right. But neither do I accept the view that some people are leaders and some people are followers. Yeah, there may be a tendency. But the way I look at it and the way my experience shows uh, me pretty clearly is that sometimes people lead and sometimes they follow. Mm -hmm. And in fact, if you are in middle management anywhere in the world, you are both leading and right. following, and you have to be able to do both well. Mm. And it, it, it's different language, it's different body uh, postures at times, it's different strategies. But to succeed, you need to be able to do both well, and you need to be conscious of which role are you playing <laughs> in mm. which conversation, which meeting, and which at which time. So. Having said that, that you know that, that that's always the first thing I need to do with any audience I'm working with is help them get past this idea that it's somehow shameful to be a follower. Mm -hmm. Not at all. 
The question is, how do you follow with honor, with integrity, with skill and effectiveness? That's what we're talking about here. Great. Yeah. And, and citizenry. Um, you know, we are all uh, members of a community and a society. And for some people, they just are checked out instead of realizing that they are significant and that uh, they need to be apprised of what's happening and uh, get informed, but not, not with disinformation, but actual facts and, um, and, and be aligned, as you said, with integrity to do goodness. Because nobody wants to go to sleep at night feeling guilty or feeling ashamed of something or I would have, should have, could have done something. That's right. Now, um, it's true that there's a small amount of senior leaders who are destructive. Mm -hmm. And your work shows that very clearly. And my experience tells me that as well. Most leaders want to do the right thing at, as they understand what the right thing is. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they are doing the right thing. Though. Right. <laughs> now, so... One of, the, one of the common things you will hear from leaders who are, do their jobs well, CEOs, uh, ar army generals, etc., is they're aware that people are telling them what they think they want to hear. Mm. And that doesn't serve them well. They need to hear, as you say, what is, what is the data on the ground? You know, what is the reality of the situation? What are the actual chances of the orders that are being given being successful or not, or even creating damage? Hmm. So, they, so this is where I, I approach this from two ends of the relationship. From the follower end, I say, look, even if your leader doesn't create an environment in which they're clearly inviting you to do that, you have a responsibility to do that. And that's why my book is called The Courageous Follower, because right. it does take courage when you're not clearly invited and, and skilled. So then we look at um, how, in the follower role, do you speak truth to power? Now, from the leader's uh, end of things, they are responsible for creating an environment in which Courage isn't even needed to speak truth mm. to them, <laughs> except it's always needed. And I'll tell you why. Even mm. if they create the most um, safest environment they can, these days in a multicultural society, you know, in, in the same organization, we have people coming from 20, 30, 40 cultures. And each of those cultures have their own rule sets mm. on how you speak to authority. Mm. And you see, so uh, even with permission to speak, it can be feel excruciatingly painful to violate their upbringing. And you don't speak up, uh, you know, with uh, anything adverse to someone older or senior or male or what have you, you know. So the leader leaders underestimate how much it takes to create an environment and to prove that it's really an environment in which it is not only safe to speak up, but really encouraged. Mm. And so I work with the leaders, um, you know, from that end of the dynamic as well, when, when we're looking at the organizational ethos, its culture and how to move it forward. Yeah. I can't help. My mind is is uh, swimming with ideas in response to listening to you. Uh, and so I guess I'm going to just spit out a few things that got triggered as you were talking. Um, so, for example, um, with setting a culture in an institution that it's okay to offer other opinions or criticisms or critiques from the point of view of improving the mission of the institution, or in the case of the United States government, like if the Constitution is what everyone's, you know, uh, swearing an oath to, 
to come back to that that document. And I guess another random thought that popped into my head was just because um, I've heard about um, like setting up a, an anonymous uh, encrypted suggestion box at an institution where people can say what they want to say without fear that they're going to be fired or 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 persecuted. I'd love to hear your responses to both those things. Right. So um, let's start with the second one first about mm -hmm. the anonymous suggestion box. Yep. All big organizations have some form of that. Mm -hmm. um, they they have uh, engagement surveys. The federal government every year, every agency does an engagement survey. Um, they some corporate organizations often have an ombuds, an ombudsman, mm -hmm. or woman. Well, the, here's the interesting thing: ombudsman uh, being a um, uh, Scandinavian word is not gendered. It sounds ah. gendered to our ear. Got so it. we changed it to ombuds, um, but ombudsman is non-gendered. <laughs> okay, thank you for for, for enlightening me yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and, creating a role in the institution where people who have human resource concerns, complaints, can go to without without fear of of retaliation. Well, this is the problem. No matter how much protections you um, claim that those channels have, people get very nervous and mm. don't always believe that those protections are really as impermeable as they're being made to believe. Mm -hmm. So you still get a hesitancy to report oftentimes. Um, but nevertheless, all of those channels are useful and can be important, but they're not sufficient. Right. Um, so, and this is where the culture has to support the open, um, not the anonymous, but the open voicing of dissension. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and there, there are almost like tricks for how to do this. Let me give you a very clear example. Okay. So, um, you you're a senior military officer and you call, you know, whatever your a dozen other officers, junior officers around because you have to make a decision uh, with critical repercussions. So you at, you're going to ask for all of their input. Do you know what the most clever of those officers do? They start with the most junior person at the table. Why? Because if they start with the most senior and if the most senior uh officer says something that the junior officer says, you know, that's not really right. Now they've got the political problem of they have to potentially make their senior officer look wrong. Interesting. So if you start with the, you know, the newest or the, or the lowest in rank, that gives them more freedom and safety uh -huh. to put their data and viewpoint on the table. Um, so, you know, there, there are, thoughtful strategies like that, that can make it easier for people to speak and for the senior officer to get the range of viewpoints they really need to make the best decision. Great. So I can't help but think about the Bay of Pigs and what was called, uh, I think it was uh, Janice called it groupthink. Yes. Where everyone was agreeing with a terrible idea. Yeah. So you know, you just showed your age and I'm even older. And, you know, a bunch of people listening to this will go, what's a bay of pig? There's a bunch of pigs swimming around in it. <laughs> so, you know, just, just for context, the Bay of Pigs was a, uh, was a place in Cuba. And after Fidel Castro uh, came to power in Cuba, the Kennedy administration uh, decided very ill-advisedly that they were going to try to overthrow uh, the revolution and they did a half-assed job of it and uh, were embarrassed internationally by, by the results. And so the question is, as you, you've intimated there, how did uh, you know, such a group of smart people 
um, well-informed people come up with such a lousy decision. And Irving Janus, in his book, Group Think, used this as one mm -hmm. of the case examples. And what he observed is a very important observation. He observed that um, a characteristic of group think is the group begins to think it's smarter than anyone else. Mm. <laughs> and um, what becomes more important to the group, this isn't verbalized, but it's just in the in the uh, ethos, it becomes more important to have um, a group um, consensus than truth. Mm -hmm. so, so later on, you know, you interviewed people, or uh, he interviewed people around that table, and they went, well, I really didn't think this was a great idea, but I didn't want to sort of be the odd man out. Well, you have to be the odd man out. That's the point. You have to be willing to be the odd man out, knowing you may be wrong. Yes. But if you have good data, um, good intention, you understand the mission, you have an obligation to put your data and viewpoint on the table. You don't have to do it aggressively, combatively, but you have to do it effectively. And that comes down uh, uh, well as well to political savvy. <laughs> mm -hmm. so, you know, there are a lot of skill sets that go into this, but it starts with the understanding of the need to create an atmosphere of freedom to think differently, um, always with the values and the the mission, assuming the mission <laughs> is, you know, is not a horrible uh, antisocial mission, right. uh, but assuming that it, it's a pro-social mission, um, that you... You have the freedom, you've created the freedom, both as leaders and followers, to look at this problem from every angle and come up with the best solutions and not let the political dynamics, the hierarchical dynamics, the authoritarian style um, uh, create a, a instead a very poor decision. Yeah, so I, I can't help but cite three social psychology experiments I use all the time in my work, and I suspect you do too, but we haven't talked explicitly about it. The first was Solomon Ash's conformity experiment where he had people in a room looking at a placard with a, a sample-sized line and three other lines. One was the same size and two others. But it was a setup, and everybody was in on the experiment except one person. And they started by giving the correct answer, and then they all started giving the wrong answer. And so the test of that experiment was how many people, even though they can see what the right answer is with their own eyes, how many people start verbalizing the wrong answer just to fit in because it was too stressful to go against the group. And the numbers around two-thirds of the people start giving the wrong answer with something that's that overt. But what, why it helps with uh, exiting cult members and such is to just show the human tendency to want to fit in, to want to conform, and to not feel like you are entitled to say, wait a minute, that line is not the correct answer. Or even better, get up out of the seat and go up and measure the suckers. Yeah. So let's let's demonstrate what we're talking about right here. Great. So um, my reading of Ash is a bit different than what you've put out there. Okay. Uh, I, I agree with the basic uh, importance of the experiment, which was that conformity, um, the pressures of conformity, um, were so great that that individuals would start giving in answers they knew were incorrect, even absurd. Right. My, my reading was, you know, when you say two thirds, I know where you were going to go. I'm pretty sure I know you were going to, you, you, you were going to go to the Milgram experiment. Yep. Milgram and Zimbardo were the two. Where, where, next where two thirds was, yeah. was the right number. My reading of Ash, and I, I could be wrong on this, um, was that it was a much lower percentage. I found, I found it wasn't as compelling as, as the Milgram data. Mm -hmm. However, nevertheless, just the fact that a rational person 
you know, who could see it was absurd to give the answers that everyone was giving would even occasionally fall in line. Right, show right. demonstrates the power of of peer pressure, not even just authoritarian. Right. Peer pressure. People yeah. let you identify with. And of course, the Milgram was the phony shock machine where the person's pretending to be a scientist with a white lab coat and is instructing in this very important psychology experiment to teach learning through punishment, people got basically coerced into essentially increasing, they thought it was no electricity, but they thought they were basically administering ever-increasing shocks to the point where the actor in the other room, and it was a recording, so that it was the same verbalizations for every level of the machine, was like, my heart, my heart, get me out of here, let me out of here. And people would turn to the guy in the white coat. It sounds like pain. We got to stop. And the person would say, no, 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 you committed. You have to continue. And two-thirds basically electrocuted a fellow human being in an hour. Or thought they were, yeah. Yes, thought they were, believed so they were. Yeah. Now, I examined Milgram very thoroughly in my book, Intelligent Disobedience. Mm -hmm. Like you, I, you know, and frankly, like many, many people, if, if you ask any audience, most of them, after they stop confusing it with Zimbardo. <laughs> and the prison <laughs> uh, experiment. Yeah. Yeah, the prison experiment. Most of them are aware that two thirds uh, went all the way to 400, what they thought was 450 volts. What I've hardly ever found is that there, uh, almost nobody was aware of all the variations that Milgram did on that experiment to see what would reduce right. the, um, the degree of inappropriate obedience. And these were very important. This is what we needed to learn from. What reduces? Yes. And... and um, one of the things I learned, you know, look, looking at Milgram carefully, um, because some of the variations reduced it almost to zero. Yep. Um, but one of the things that I learned from Milgram, which I try to bring into my workshops, is that he observed that there were four stages. Hmm. The first was people signed up for what they thought was a, an experiment that had some social value. Uh, we're going to see if we can figure out how to help people learn faster. Right. Oh. Second stage, as you described, uh, they go, wait a second, I didn't realize I was going to be hurting someone like this. Are, are you sure it's okay? Mm -hmm. And uh, and the experimenter would say, yes, it's okay, and keep going. Right. The third stage was that the psychological stress became so severe about am I am I am I going to give this person a heart attack the stress between what they were doing potentially uh, that would cause harm and yet their um, need to uh, comply with the authority figure was so great which is why the experiment is no longer considered ethical right that they had to resolve that stress and they could resolve it in one of two ways. One way was ethical and one way was not ethical. The unethical way was to say, he's, 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 he's the expert. He knows what he's doing. I'm just going to follow what he says. And if something goes wrong, you know, it's his fault. Yeah. Give the responsibility over to the experimenter. Exactly. Of, mm -hmm. which is the, and the other third in the basic experiment said, you know what? I don't care that you're an authority figure. I answer to a higher authority figure, whether they conceive that as God or their values. Uh, um, and they said, I'm not continuing to comply. And so the, what's so important, I think, where I think all of our, everyone in um, hierarchical organizations, especially where they have the power of life and death over others, have to understand that there will be times when they experience tremendous psychological stress that needs to be resolved. And it is not enough to just resolve it. They need to learn how to resolve it ethically. Right. And that takes some training. Yep. And we've seen the training done well in certain environments. 
such as the airline industry, which mm -hmm. has trained junior pilots and flight crew to override a captain if what the captain is doing is potentially lethal to the aircraft. So we know that you can actually train this, uh, but we don't, unfortunately, hardly, you know, we, we virtually don't do it. And, right. and we really, really need to be doing it, which is where it comes down to when you talked about my work for children, where I'm trying to introduce a way without scaring children right. to get them to have a tool and a consciousness of how they can say no when yeah. it's already wrong and dangerous. And a term that I really like a lot is heroic resistor. Ooh, yeah. You know, and uh, I show a, an old dateline about uh, the Ash Conformity Study, and they feature a woman and two guys and their varied reactions to the Ash Study. And the, they start with a woman who's continues to give the correct answer, but her face gets more and more distraught because it's like, huh? But she sticks to her guns. And then after they do a post interview and she's smiling, yep, I didn't want to give the wrong answer. Then there was a guy who caved after a few sessions and he just kind of gave the wrong answer really, whispering it and just was, <laughs> right? And he was just like, after the post interview was like, oh, you know, I just figured I wasn't playing the game right, so I just kind of gave up. And he looked like he was miserable. And then there was another guy who was older who emphatically was giving the wrong answers, but he was the most honest and just said, I started giving the wrong answers because it made me feel better. That's fascinating. I, I never... I'll share the video that. with you. Yeah, it's that's re really... It's really, it's really wonderful. But I want to point out something that I learned in social psychology about the bystander effect mm -hmm. or the opposite, which is the upstander effect, which is what we're trying to promote with people. And the idea is this. If 30 people are walking down the street and a, somebody pretends to faint, 30 people are walking back and forth and nobody goes to help, most people interpret that as a script. Don't help either. But if you're alone and somebody falls, almost everybody goes and tries to help the person. And so the, the idea is, even if you're in a group, do the right thing. And the way to know what the right thing is, put yourself in that other person's shoes. If it was you who fainted, would you want anyone to come? Say, are you okay? Can I call 911? You need water, whatever, right? So if you, if you encourage that empathy in, uh, muscle in people to put themselves in other people's shoes, they will self-correct many times that impulse to just go along with what's, what's happening. What do you think? I think it's wonderful. Um, in, in other words, um, it, it's installing a little bit of a program you're selling two programs there, really, but the one that I'm finding particularly fascinating is to just say, if I were alone, what would I do? Yeah. Um, in other words, uh, now I, what I've done is I've canceled out all the social pressure or my interpretation of right. the social, the right social thing or wrong social thing, and instead, what do I? How do I assess the situation? What do I think is the right thing to do? The compassionate and thing to do. So I think that's ter terrific. Um, hmm. Just it's almost like a, a new algorithm to. Oh. Um, you know, the other piece is if I was on the ground, it was me. Of course, now now we're into um, to some degree John Rawls ethics um, model, which is you know what's the right thing to do. Well, you have to put yourself in both roles, and you know, uh, and do what's right from both roles, not just for. From, from one role. And if you could see yourself on the ground, you would know the right thing to do mm -hmm. is to be helpful. Yeah, right. And I'll just add, because we mentioned the three experiments, Zimbardo did a phony prison in the basement of the psychology department at Stanford, uh, tested a group of young men as basically healthy, randomly divided them into prisoners and guards, and proposed to do a two-week experiment but 
really control the behavior, information, thoughts, and emotion were at work. And they had to call off the experiment after six days because young men who were prisoners were starting to have nervous breakdowns. And at least one of the guards, if not more, was starting to get sadistic and, and getting his jollies off of humiliating and, and threatening and doing other horrible things. And both Milgram and Zimbardo were the basis, I think, for uh, internal review boards that said, with all human testing, we have to consider the effect on people uh, to protect people, which I want to protect people, but then I'm in the field of destructive authoritarian cults. And they're doing the impermissible social psychology experiments every day of the week. So when I hear stories of what people have been subjected to, for me, the database of the effects on human beings just keeps expanding. You're right. And of course, um, what happens is when you then add the power of the repressive state, that's when we get the nightmare scenarios. Um, you know, let's say Mao's cultural revolution. Yeah. Uh, it was not different than Zimbardo's prison experiment, but it but it but the result was you had millions of young people um brutalizing uh people for having just a little bit more wealth or knowledge, education. I, I mean it was mass this uh, you know, psychosis. Yeah. Um, you know, so so these these are very serious. Yeah, turning in their own parents, turning in their siblings to the authorities. And I might add the current head of China is now extolling Mao and trying to create an image that he's on that level of authority, uh, whether he does, you know, isn't going to be voted in anymore. He's just going to be in charge. And that's where my my current work is going. I'm not there yet. Perhaps we'll have another interview next year, um, because there's there's a window, I, at least theoretically, there's a window where, as an authoritarian starts to accrue the power of the state, which of course this the power of the state means you have the you have the right to decide who lives and dies. You have the army, the, the judicial system, the right. uh, police forces, the intelligence agency. Right. This, this, you know, this is fearsome power. And as the authoritarian personality starts to um, display their, their, their proclivity for this, I'm postulating that there's a window where we can detect and interrupt it before they consolidate their power, where it's almost impossible then to um, counter them short of full revolution or war, which of course are the banes of human existence. Right. So how do we, you know, how do we um, detect this trajectory and interrupt it um, is um, where, you know, what I'm working on now. Wow, fascinating. Do you know the work of Bandy X. Lee by any chance, Ira? Tell me more about it. I'm, so I'm not... Bandy Lee is a, um, a forensic psychiatrist. She was at Yale, uh, and she edited the book The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump that had 37 other mental health professionals and other experts weighing in uh, her thing is dangerousness. And from the very beginning of his nomination, she started saying, wait a minute, this is person is not fit to be president of the United States. And the book became a bestseller when it was first introduced. And then censorship happened. Like she was not allowed to be on major media. Uh, and it appears that it was Big Pharma influencing the American Psychiatric Association to invoke what was called the Goldwater Rule to say that a psychiatrist or psychologist should not ever diagnose a, a person publicly. And to which her response is, A, I'm not a member of the American Psychiatric Association. And secondly, I have a duty to warn. 
And in my work as a, an expert in dangerousness, I rarely get to sit in the room with the person I am evaluating. I'm looking at their words. I'm looking at their deeds. You know, they were killing cats, big red flag. They're saying I could shoot someone on the middle of Fifth Avenue and my followers will still follow me. To her, red flags, but we got no traction at all to raise the question around uh, the office of the president of the United States. So, and from my work, where I go with that is, as uh, she said, she rarely gets to sit in the room right. <laughs> with these figures. Most of us don't. Right. So my uh, attention is on the follower end of the relationship. Yep. Um, why are those who are following follow? Um, what uh, do they perceive as the benefit of doing that? How um, are they vulnerable? Um, how can they um, get some distance from what they're being fed. Um, and so this is, you know, I'm sure this overlaps uh, with your work. Mm. Um, but um, I'm going to be looking at this, you know, I, I've spent uh, the large part of my career in Washington, D.C. Mm -hmm. I know what it's like to be, I, I literally facilitated over 100 congressional office retreats for members of Congress. Wow. Nonpartisan, I believe, right? Nonpartisan, nonpartisan. I know what it's like, mm -hmm. uh, the dynamics, the pressures, um, and um, and also I've done a lot of work with age, with federal agencies and some international uh, work as well, uh, with the Senate of Nigeria, for example. Hmm. And um, so uh, what I'm hoping I can do with this next book mm -hmm. is to provide something of a Roadmap may be too strong a word, but um, a way for those of us who are at different levels of following, because we're not all at the same level. Right. How can we um, stay sufficiently mindful to know if we're being subverted mm -hmm. and what and, and due to the what's coming down due to the peer pressure, due to the media, et cetera. Yeah. And what can we do to not only insulate ourselves from being mesmerized by this and falling into line, but to potentially, um, assuming on some peer leadership, to keep others from doing so. We'll see. I, I, I'm very confident. I will not have all the answers, Steve. Yeah, That's me too. Opinion. But um, but I'm but I'm really um, equally confident that I think um, my next work will contribute to how do we do this better. I think it's it's um, as you said at the beginning. It's one of the most important questions we have um, as a species because historically we've we've continuously followed these destructive strongmen and um, and contemporaneously we see so many of them emerging again. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, anyone who uh, uh, is working in this sphere, um, I encourage them and I hope that our work uh, can support each other. So I want to share, if I may, um, something I did with my family and friends back in 76 after my deprogramming from the Moonies, because it became very evident to me in the following months that people were really worried about me, that I might go back to the cult, you know, or something like that. And I said, to, I realized, I, I said to them, I'm giving you a card, you know, it was an invisible card, but I'm like, I'm giving you this card, Ira. I trust you. If you ever see me espousing weird crap, or if you ever see me involved with someone that you think is suspect, I want you to take out the card and remind me of this moment, and I promise I will listen for the data and consider your worries. And... 
I just experienced people's worry and 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 fear going down because a lot of people are afraid to talk to their family or friends when they see something wrong is happening and somebody's really into somebody. And the most common thing is you're dating somebody and your friends are like, that's a bad person. Don't start. Like they cheated on the last three women. Like don't start with this. And no, it's different now. What would have got? Please respond. I want to say that I really like this idea of this card. What came to mind visually was um, a, a referee in a, you know, an English football match. <laughs> Give me a yellow foul. <laughs> foul. <laughs> right. you know, and, and it's actually, you know, um, it's actually enough of a um, sort of metaphor in our in some of our Western culture mm. that it could actually it could actually catch on. I think it's worth I think it's worth uh, sort of uh, building on that further and see if you can get. Uh, you can get some momentum around that. Make it a meme. Yeah, know. make it a meme. So, I mean, the bottom line is, I think in this age of social media, where people are listening to all kinds of biased uh, sources and don't have the the skill set to reality test, I've been talking about creating a trust pod amongst your family or friends, and not just ones that believe the same way you believe politically. But people that you know genuinely care about the truth, maybe they're scientists, maybe they're doctors, maybe they're lawyers, but to have like a, a pod where you make a, a pact with each other to like watch each other's back. And if you're thinking of going to a workshop or something, yes, you can do your deep dive research on it, but you can float it past your pod and say, hey, what do you, what, you know, I'm thinking of doing this workshop next month. Anybody got any concerns about it or whatever? Because, you know, there's strength in more people to reality. Very cool ideas. Very cool ideas. So um, I, I'm aware that uh, our hour is approaching its end. I'm wondering if you have any um, final thoughts or questions for me or how you would like to... Uh, I want to I want to put the, the the big question to you if you had the funds or if so, somebody in government said Ira what do we need to do to get America back on track to decrease polarization to create ethical uh, uh, models that people can really adhere to like what what comes to mind if you have that fantasy wish you know, kind of opportunity. Thank you. What an interesting uh, thought experiment. My, um, you know, I am chairman emeritus of a nonpartisan organization uh, that works with Congress. And um, obviously it is, <laughs> it has not produced a fully functioning Congress. Um, but, <laughs> but, Nevertheless, those improvements that we have seen over the years, and that would be a different interview, um, almost all came about by finding, you know, identifying certain practices and identifying which congressional offices did best at those practices mm. and calling them out, giving them uh, recognition, giving them awards, and um, helping others to understand the criteria by which they merited the awards. And what we would find is that um, hundreds of other offices, the congressperson would say, why didn't we get an award? What do we need to do to better ourselves? You know, so um, basically finding um, models, um, good case examples, and, and supporting them, uh, disseminating them, um, analyzing them for what makes them work, um, and you know, getting getting those out. But that's, I suspect that would have some marginal. Mm. I think, and I suspect you you think similarly here, perhaps not quite the same, is that we're really talking about deep cultural change, mm. which requires 
how do we educate our children on the subject of authority? We know that there's some, you know, there's some programs that work on, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh, sorry. Well, I was going to add, if I may, Phil Zimbardo has something called the Heroic Imagination Project, heroicimagination.com where he has a curriculum for students that, that teachers can go through. And they are little snippets of social psychology experiments with a set of follow-up questions. And for me, that is a tool that already exists, but getting it into schools is you know, the, 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 the step that's missing. And I think that's terrific. And I think, so I would add my, Please. You know, the blinkthinkchoicevoice.com, just because people, you know, we haven't talked about it. So let me just very briefly, that intelligent disobedience is a term I learned from the training of guide dogs for people who are blind. And uh, the guide dog has to learn to obey all the commands that it should obey. And it has to learn when and how to disobey if obeying would produce harmful results and such as the person walking out into traffic the dog would exactly and they must know if they can't differentiate when to disobey Mm -hmm. they can't be a guide dog because they're going to get the the person killed right so this is the how you do this is well known it's well developed Mm -hmm. and what i did was take some of the elements of it put it into my book intelligent disobedience and then distilled it down into mnemonic for young children. Um, And and it has produced good results to the limited degree it has been tested. If I had a million, two million, five million, I would uh, probably uh, focus it there on setting up the uh, research that would uh, fully uh, test out uh, this approach, validate it or find out how it works. Refine it. I think it's brilliant. And I think it works. Yeah. How did it need, what's needed to make it better? Because ultimately it is producing individual citizens, individual people um, who think, who understand the consequences like Phil Zimbardo was trying to do with the heroic imagination. And we prepare them for Social life. Social life is a tremendously complex endeavor that we take for granted. Yes. Um, we, we, we certainly, all of our children get socialized. They learn how to stand in line and, you know, be quiet while the teacher's talking, etc. They learn it too well. Mm. Um, I'm not saying they shouldn't learn it, but they should also learn the counterbalance to it on when not to uh, just fall in line and obey. So that's what I would do. So thank you for asking. Yeah, and I'm going to just add on and say research is going to be critically important for public health purposes, too. It's one of my wish lists is to do an epidemiological study to show how much undue influence and mind control cults uh, harm the mental health of anyone that's exposed to it and such. And I'll throw in my wish which is I'd like to see congressional hearings on brainwashing and mind control and QAnon and psyops and like get the top people together and do an educational thing for not only members of Congress who are uh, swallowed the, 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 the wrong pill or whatever the right analogy is, uh, but to try to uh, clarify. There really is a difference between ethical influence and unethical influence. There really are ways to reality test that. Great. Yeah. Well, uh, so thank you. Let's see, let's see if we uh, somebody listening uh, grants your wish and, uh, and you yours, know, my friend. And, 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 yeah, and you uh, loop me into that as well. Totally. I want to thank you profoundly. It's a pleasure. Uh, and I look forward to many more communications with you and love to get together in person sometime. So you're invited to Boston if you... Great, and I've learned a few good things from you, a few nuggets that I'm going to pursue. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much. Bye. Take care.
That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence, both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag IGotOut, and join our online community at IGotOut.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.